Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historico Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll talk with Florida's first folk arts coordinator, Peggy Balger. So if you get into that website, it, it's really great. You can hear Zora Neale Hurston's recordings and her voice. You can hear um, music from all over the state. Uh, you can hear the actual voices of ex-slaves telling their story. So we put it all together into a Florida Folklife collection. We'll discuss the personal papers of Joseph Marshall from the American Revolution. Joseph Marshall was a, a young man at the uh, beginning of the war. He was only about 18, actually. And he joined a loyalist militia group known as the King's Rangers. And we'll revisit the amazing Windover archaeological dig. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers. That's the song Florida Storm, part of a collection called Drop On Down in Florida, field recordings of African-American traditional music 1977 to 1980. Recently remastered and re-released in digital formats, the collection is one of many projects conducted by the Florida Folklife Program, which is a component of the Florida Department of State Division of Historical Resources. Peggy Balger was the first Florida Folklife Coordinator starting in 1976. Balger says she followed in the footsteps of great collectors of Florida folk tales, folk music, and oral history, such as Zora Neale Hurston, Alan Lomax, and Stetson Kennedy. In fact, Balger wrote her Ph.D. dissertation about Stetson Kennedy. I have to go back to when I first met Stetson. I came down to Florida in the fall of 1976 to be the very first folk arts coordinator uh, for the state under the Department of State. Uh, I was a curious choice because I had never set foot in the state of Florida before, and so I knew that I didn't know Busquad about Florida, and I needed to really quickly find who had done work in Florida before. So came to the University of Florida, came to the archives here, found, and started really uh, delving into uh, materials that were done during the WPA. So Stetson Kennedy, Zora Neale Hurston, Alan Lomax, Herbert Halpert, all of them were folklorists who had worked in Florida 
back in the 30s and 40s. I was 25 years old in 76, and I thought anybody who had lived in the 1930s and 40s was dead. Because, of course, you know, that was ancient history. And I happened to say to somebody, gee, I wish some of these folks were still alive. You know, and they said, well, Stetson Kennedy is alive and well and living in Jacksonville. So I went to see Stetson in 76, and I started interviewing him about the WPA work that he had done here in Florida. And over the course of the years, we became fast friends from 76 till when he died in 2011. Um, he really informed the work that I did in Florida. And he, um, I, you know, I was interviewing him about his folklore work, and then we got into his whole infiltration of the Ku Klux Klan, his friendship with Woody Guthrie. I mean, every time I'd go to talk to him, there'd be another chapter in his life where he went behind the Iron Curtain, where he was in Paris and couldn't get back. So um, many years later, in 1986, I went back to finish or to get the PhD from the University of Pennsylvania, and my professor knew Stetson, but he also thought Stetson had died. And I said, no, no, Stetson's alive and well. He says, well, that's your dissertation. The Florida Folklife Collection contains manuscripts, photographs, audio and video recordings, and other materials dating from the 1930s to the present. The Florida Folklife Program documents and preserves our rich and varied traditional cultures. Peggy Balzer recalls the early days of Florida's Folklife Program. Well, back in 1976, when I, you know, got this job, it was a one-year grant from the National Endowment for the Arts. Uh, Bess Lomax Hawes, who's Alan Lomax's sister, had just started uh, working at the National Endowment for the Arts, and she had uh, created this folk arts program for the National Endowment. And her vision was that she wanted to place a folklorist in every state in the country to really do the kind of work that the WPA and, and the Federal Writers Project had been doing all over the country during the 30s. So in 1976, there were only six of us. It ended up that every state does now have a state folklife program or state folklorist. But back then, in 1976, I was just young enough and naive enough to think, oh, it'll be possible to do a, a survey of folk art of Florida in one year. Ha! <laughs> I soon found out that was not to be the case. And uh, luckily, I mean, I had to actually raised the money to keep my job going and, and we eventually got 12 people on the staff and we were the Bureau of Florida Folklife and, and uh, the, the program is still going today. Today, the Florida Folklife Program preserves our heritage through apprenticeship programs and educational outreach. The Florida Folklife Collection is extensive and Peggy Balzer was one of the principal people involved in building this repository of traditional culture. It just does my heart uh, so much good to see young scholars coming in and, and taking over the reins. The state folklorist of Florida, who actually just left to take another job, Blaine Wade, approached me and also some of the people that I worked with back in the 1970s, and I realized 
he's about the age I was when I first met Stetson. And, you know, I thought Stetson was so old. He was only 60 years old. <laughs> so, so I see this uh, continuing now. Uh, some of the work that I'm most, most proud of has just been re-released by a company called Dust to Digital. And it's field work uh, that we did with African-American sacred and secular music. Uh, there are four of us doing field work all over the state. And we um, put out a double album in 1981 called Drop On Down in Florida. And, uh, you know, it was fine, you know, for, for the time. It's vinyl. And uh, it's wonderful, though, because now with Dutch Dust to Digital, when they came and approached us, uh, we were able to put about three times as many tracks on uh, this double CD now with a 250-page book. That's Moses Williams performing Sitting on Top of the World. After serving as the first Florida Folk Arts Coordinator starting in 1976, Peggy Balzer later worked at the Library of Congress. It was like I died and went to heaven. I actually had the best job, I think, in the world. I was the director of the American Folklife Center at the Library of Congress. The American Folklife Center actually was created in 1976, the same year that I ended up coming to Florida. And it was directed for many years until I became the second director by Alan Jabour. And Alan Jabour is also Floridian. He's from Jacksonville. But he, um, uh, the center actually has the largest folklife archive in the world. And it's over well over four million items. It's a part of the Library of Congress, but it also does a lot of public programming. So we did uh, festivals, we did um, publications, symposia, um, and uh, also multimedia uh, projects and videos. So um, at, the, at the center, I had a staff of 44, and most of those folks who worked for us were either archivists or they were ethnomusicologists or folklorists. And uh, there's, um, they do great work. And one of the things that we did when I was there, though, which is really great, was that um, we digitized and put up online all of the Florida materials that are in the Library of Congress, the, the 
Federal Writers Project materials. And so, and Stetson, of course, was still alive then. He wrote a very nice uh, uh, introductory essay to the whole uh, thing. Uh, so if you get into that website, it, it's really great. You can hear Zora Neale Hurston's recordings and her voice. You can hear um, music from all over the state. Uh, you can hear the actual voices of ex-slaves telling their story. So we put it all together into a Florida Folklife collection. Historians, archaeologists, anthropologists, and folklorists all work to preserve and document Florida's cultural heritage, but Peggy Balzer says we must acknowledge that change is inevitable. People usually wring their hands about, oh my gosh, you know, the, you know culture's going to change and this is going to die. And... Um, you really have to, uh, I think, look at it in terms of an organic, uh, you know, an organic growing up, if you will, of the state. So certain things that I documented, for instance, in the 1970s are no more. Uh, I did a documentary on the shrimping industry of Fernandina Beach, where I now live. Uh, when I was doing that documentary in the 1970s, there were over 100 shrimp boats going out every day. There's now eight. Uh, so there's a real difference in what's happening with the shrimping industry. And it's not just the people who are actually the shrimpers, it's all of the all of the trades and all of the support system that goes along with shrimping. And so the culture of Fernandina has changed. Down in Tarpon Springs, the uh, we were able to document the Greek sponge fishermen when they still wore the big old helmets and the, the big suits. They were still wearing that back in the 1970s. Um, there's still some shrimp, I mean some uh, uh, sponge fishing done, but it's certainly not like it was back in the 70s. And I'm sure that's the same thing like if, if Stetson were here to talk about it, there were so many things that he documented that by the time I came along in the 1970s were not the same. For instance, the turpentine camps and the railroad camps and, and some of the uh, sugar cane, um, uh, well, the working conditions were very different. And, uh, and of course, the Seminole tribe and the Miccosukee tribe, what the culture is today has evolved. Peggy Balzer was the original director of the Florida Folklife Program, which is a component of the Florida Department of State Division of Historical Resources. This is LMA Wilson with Lily B. Williams and Richard Williams from the CD Drop On Down in Florida, field recordings of African-American traditional music, 1977 to 1980. No more crying. No more crying.
This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Visit our website at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch original video, explore the Library of Florida History collection, and much more. While you're there, be sure to click on the Join Now button to get our newsletter, The Society Report, and our journal, The Florida Historical Quarterly. That's myfloridahistory.org. Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, between 1763 and 1783, Florida was under British control, which made it a safe haven for British loyalists during the American Revolution. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Often when we think about the American Revolution, people tend to focus on the mid-Atlantic states up around the Northeast. But it's important to understand that there was quite a bit of of, um, action sort of going on uh, in the southern colonies, and that included the uh, the Florida colonies, east and west Florida, which at the time were controlled by the British. They were British colonies. Um, And at the outbreak of of the war in the late 1770s, um, Georgia really became a a colony that was uh, constantly fought over. There was a a huge sort of um, rebel uprising, but there were also a number of loyalists. Uh, who did stay behind. And some of the major cities in Georgia, Charleston, Savannah, changed hands quite a bit, Augusta. Um, but uh, East Florida actually uh, remained uh, in British hands throughout the war. And that was actually uh, not by chance. There were a number of attacks on uh, by rebel forces coming out of Georgia uh, into East Florida. But there are a number of these small militia units who actually defended uh, the capital, defended St. Augustine. Well, the Joseph Marshall collection at the Library of Florida History contains some very rare documents from this period. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Joseph Marshall was a a young man at the uh, beginning of the war. He was only about 18, actually. And he joined a loyalist militia group known as the King's Rangers. Uh, And they were led by a a very famous man named Thomas Brown, uh, who was in in Florida and also in Georgia. Uh, Well, Joseph was actually living with his family in Georgia, decided to join the the loyalist militia, uh, and was uh, assigned to one of these small detachments, but quickly rose through the ranks. And we can see that through a number of the documents that we have in this collection. We actually have his original appointment as a captain, as an officer in this militia unit, and it's signed by, uh, by Thomas, and it's dated uh, 17, this is a little bit later in the war, so 17, um, 1780, when he was promoted to captain. Um, but it also lists some of the stipulations that go along with, uh, with this promotion, and that included uh, recruiting your own um, soldiers. And uh, another interesting document we have here, uh, these are all original documents, by the way, um, are the instructions for how to recruit soldiers into your loyalist regiment, which is really fascinating. And it talks about, you know, they have to pledge allegiance to the British crown and to the the king. Um, Also talks a little bit about payment. And at the bottom here, it mentions that uh, anyone who does sign up and, and serve their their allotted length of time, they'll be uh, paid in uh, in land in land sessions, um, and that was real uh, really important to the Florida colonies because the British were always trying to bolster the population, and this was one way to do that. They would gr- uh, give these huge land grants to uh, to soldiers who would fight in loyalist units, and these are all uh, beautifully written handwritten documents. 
Right. They're all about um, what we could center like legal size paper, and it's on a um, on kind of a vellum paper and and uh, somewhat almost like an old parchment. You know, they're they're a bit yellowed, but you're right. The handwriting is absolutely beautiful. Um, and it, it, Marshall was actually had very um, um, clear handwriting. Unlike a lot of a lot of the documents that we come across from this time period, you can read through these these letters um, quite easily, and they're really fascinating. Like I said, as you kind of go through it, you can follow this young man uh, crossing the border between Florida and Georgia. Although most of the action took place in Georgia. Um, another really fascinating part of the collection is his handwritten journal. It's a small leather-bound book. Um, you know, it's about six inches, six by four inches, uh, and it's. Uh, it looks like it was probably compiled from field notes. Uh, was was actually put uh, um, into this form about 1790, sometime. So after the war, um, so there's probably quite a bit of of uh, recollection mixed in with actual events. But he does mention coming to Florida after the end of the war, and this is where it kind of gets interesting. People forget, um, you know, after the the war ended, the British. Um, capitulated. You know, Georgia became an American uh, an American colony, and the British were forced to leave. So you had thousands of people who now became refugees who were sailing down to the closest uh, British port at that time, which was St. Augustine. Uh, and he mentions crossing the, the treacherous bar into St. Augustine, which we know uh, many ships were lost as they were coming in in 1783. But he also mentions staying in St. Augustine for a very brief amount of time, because as soon as they got there, they, they found out that... Um, the ownership had changed a little bit. Um, the uh, the Spanish had actually taken control of, of British East Florida. Uh, so now we have this poor marshal who uh, just survived a war, uh, has now sailed down to St. Augustine and, and has to leave. So Marshall, at the end of the American Revolution, uh, stayed in Florida as it was transferred back to, to Spanish control and uh, tried to retain some land that he had, right? That's right. As I mentioned before, as payment for his services, the British would give out these huge land grants. Um, and Marshall actually received a thousand acres over in uh, what is now Escambia County, just west of, of Pensacola. Um, but unfortunately, it was not honored by the incoming Spanish government. Uh, so he decided to leave and, and actually ended up in, in Nova Scotia, of all places. <laughs> all right, great. Well, thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and Archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. This is Florida Frontiers. Thirty years ago, excavation began on a prehistoric mortuary pond near Titusville. Robert Casanello from robertcasanello.com revisits the amazing Windover archaeological dig. When archaeologists, anthropologists look at cemeteries, they not only look at the, the people who are physically buried there, but it's also a snapshot of a moment in time. And in that moment, you can see materials that are, are taken out of everyday life. In some cases, they're special items that are then placed in the burials, and those are you know, presumably going, shall we say, into the next life with that person. That was Dr. Glenn Duran from Florida State University telling us how cemeteries give us a window into the lives of a society at a specific point in time. Dr. Duran did much of the work at the Windover site located in Brevard County that was a burial ground used over 7,000 years ago during Florida's archaic period. Not a lot is known about the people who lived and were buried there, but much can be learned by studying how the bodies were prepared for their eternal rest. 
One of the most important finds at the Windover site were the textiles, preserved because they were under centuries of muck at the bottom of the pond. Dr. Duran tells me what amazed him most about these textiles. One of the things that, that is, I think, fascinating about Windover is the fact that over 60 burials were interred with different kinds of hand-woven fabric, from bags to sort of capes to tunic-like materials or some string. Uh, and what is remarkable about the fabrics is that they are surprisingly complex. And a lot of archaeologists and people, when they think about you know what amounts to fairly deep prehistory, you know, seven, eight thousand years ago, you have this this image of of hide-clad hunters and gatherers. But in fact, you know, this is an incredibly rich textile industry. It's something that that simply vanishes in most cases. I mean, it's a really old technology, and it's it's interesting because the uh, when you talk to the the experts who've done the analysis for us. It's actually very, very complex, and if you compare the windover fabric technologies in terms of the weaving patterns to what we know that's, say, 5,000 years later, it's actually more complex in this early period than it is closer to contact. So there's, there's some changes that have taken place that, that may reflect you know, a simplification of the, the technology. In a way, some of this complexity is, I guess you could call it a lost art that was refined down to you know, simpler elements closer to the time of contact. What probably was the most insightful and most frustrating find for the researchers at Windover were the textiles. They were insightful because the textiles gave researchers so many clues into the technological advancement of these archaic Indians. They were frustrating because the textiles, thousands of years old, were still so fragile. How these items were woven and manufactured gave researchers a fascinating window into the evolution of textile manufacturing over thousands of years. Dr. Duran explains. There's really quite an elaborate decorative pattern on those things, and it's you know, we often think of, of folks making these kinds of tools, bone, antler, whatever, without sort of a, shall we say, an artistic eye. But the reality is, if you look at the organics from these kinds of wet sites, you realize that, you know, we're just like them. We tend to decorate things, and it's those decorative patterns and styles that that really provide us you know, a hint of a of a much richer let's say, symbolic and, uh, you know, and, a, and a decorative pattern in, in, in this particular point in time. Dr. Duran leaves us with what amazes him most about these textiles. Textiles, hand-woven materials, probably go back thirty to 40,000 years. I mean, it's a really old technology, and it just vanishes. Windower is an incredibly special place in Florida prehistory, and it, it really goes beyond Florida. It provides us this window in time for a very early period all across North America with, with implications that are, that are much, much broader than Central Florida and Florida itself. I interviewed Dr. Duran and others for the podcast series, A History of Central Florida. Look for it on iTunes. That was Dr. Glenn Duran, and I'm Robert Casanello with Florida Frontiers. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. 
We'll be right here again next week. Until then, please visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org where you can read our weekly Florida Frontiers blog. You can also get our daily Facebook post, Today in Florida History, by liking our Facebook page at Florida Historical Society. Have a great week. I'm Ben Broatmarkle. Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, is made possible in part by the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and by the Rossiter House Museum and Gardens in the Historic O'Galley section of Melbourne, Florida. It's also made possible by Florida's Space Coast Office of Tourism, representing destinations from Titusville to Cocoa Beach to Melbourne Beach.